Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life.
It's not something to get rid of. Rather, the way we pay attention to self-aversion is actually the ground of the past. for a while, but you come to a point where you just want to be a sage for yourself 
And if others are illuminated in your presence, that is wonderful. If others seem to be angry in your presence, that's also wonderful because then you would ask yourself, what was in my energy that they felt they had permission to say what they said or to do what they've done to me? And it's something that I I find myself thinking a lot about. This morning when I woke up, I was trying to replay in my mind moments in which I felt that I was not honored by the way someone might have looked at me or, you know, hearing gossip from other people about what someone said about me or perhaps somebody just downright, rightedly being unkind. And I paused this morning and I went inside and I asked, what is it that a soul sees that they feel they have a right to be that way. And by all means, I haven't had that for a while, but it just came up this morning. And I thought to myself, what is it? What is it that souls feel when they look at you and then somehow feel they have the permission to either praise you or dunk you? In Hinduism, the worshipers who worship certain deities will go through certain periods where they bathe the deities, they dress the deities, they feed the deities, they travel around the town with the deity on their shoulder, and then they go to the Ganges or to the river, and they literally throw that deity in the in the river. They just dump they just dump the deity. And I wonder what does that mean spiritually, that whatever comes through your lips that has inspired you, you took it it transformed you, you used it, and for some reason you wake up one day and maybe the person said something not the right way or did something not the right way and you just dumped them. You dumped them and you dump them. And so we're at a time where it's not that we have to wait on a leadership to show us the way. But our own lack of happiness or peace of mind is signaling to us wherever we're going with whatever we're thinking isn't the way. And so we're in an age where the awakening has to happen inside of each and every one of us on the planet are now being signaled, whether it's a loud signal, a subtle signal, a mediocre signal, but something in your thoughts are signaling to you something has got to give. Something has to change inside of you. Something has to connect to a higher sense of purpose. And if you listen to that thought over and over again, it might even feel like a straw for a drowning man. It might be your only source to pull you out of the cobweb of karmas that the soul is traveling with. And yet at the same token, you're saying, I have to hold on to the straw until I get to safe waters that I can paddle my way back to shore. So our whole spiritual journey in this particular time, I feel, is a lot like that. There's got to be one thing about you that you can hold on to, that you can believe in, that is holier than thou, that is of the highest quality, that is is you, that is you. There's something about your thoughts and the vibration that comes through you that is pure, that is peaceful, that is noble, that is stable, 
that is kind, that is loving. And so when you make a choice from that place, whether it's in business, whether it's in the communion of a relationship, whether it's in the way you choose to spend your money, if it comes from that pure place, you can pretty much guarantee your future will be set in gold. (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining us, and um, I hope you're really doing well. And whatever just came through, I hope it really touched you at at a level in which you really begin to value why you're breathing and why you're here. Today I'm going to be introducing a very interesting teacher which I have not known much about until recent. It's Jeff Cox. And while Jeff was in college, he was guided to the teachings of Paul Brinton. And in the early 70s, he moved to the area around Ithaca, New York, where he and many other students studied with Anthony Damiani, who was a very close student of Paul Brinton's work. So guided by Anthony's inspiration, Jeff actually helped to build Wisdom's Golden Rod, which is a center for spiritual study, and he lived there for around five years as a resident monk. But now later, as a devotee of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Jeff was instrumental in establishing Snow Lion Publications as the major publisher of Tibetan Buddhism. And after nearly 30 years, he retired as president and co-owner in 2012. But since then, Jeff has now become a board member of the Paul Brinton Philosophic Foundation, which is the principal guardian of Paul Brinton's literary legacy. Jeff's publishing background has been put to use in the editing and publication of Paul Brinton's unpublished writing. The latest effort is a recently released Instructions for Spiritual Living. Today gives me great privilege to welcome Jeff Cox. Hi, Jeff. Welcome. Hi, Sister Jenna. Happy to be here, and thank you for all these wise words that you shared. I I enjoyed it very much. It was helpful. Uh, You're welcome. I appreciate you sharing that. For our listeners who may not be very familiar with Paul Brinton, and I have also recently become more aware of some of his work, could you let us know a little bit as to who he was and why have you regarded him so highly? Sure. Paul Brunton was very active in the early 20th century traveling. He lived in London. He was born and raised in the Culture Center of London. And he became interested in spirituality when he was a teenager, actually. Uh, He writes that um, he had profound mystical experiences. You can read about them in his notebooks, which are online. He had these profound experiences at the age of 16, but they don't always, these kinds of mystical experiences, as you might well know, don't come with uh, an explanation. Um, You're introduced to something that is really changes your orientation towards what is life. And he, with a very inquisitive mind, he began to become involved in what was available at the time, which was like theosophy, spiritualism, and uh, had a friend who had become one of the early monks in Southeast Asia, Buddhist monks. And that person, I think, was the one who suggested to Paul Brunton, you should really go to India and meet the teachers that you might find there. So in the 1930s, early, very early 1930s, he traveled to India and was exploring all kinds of 
yogis and psychics and people of various you know spiritual grades and and various spiritual focus and he eventually found Ramana Maharshi. He was directed to go to Ramana Maharshi actually by Sri Shankaracharya of Kanchi, who lived actually longer than Paul Brunton did, and many of the people from our group here in Ithaca actually went to see Shankara. But uh, as you probably know, Ramana Maharshi died in 1950, shortly after, at least I was born, too shortly after. I wouldn't have gone when I was three. So Paul Brunton was asked by Ramana and by other Vedantic teachers, they saw in him the potential for bringing these doctrines to the West. And in the early 30s, I mean, India was regarded as, you know, it was a colony of uh, Britain. Uh, It was considered backward in many ways economically, but, you know, Britain was taking what it could from the the, uh, from the country as colonial powers do. But PB recognized that the spirituality of India was probably one of its biggest assets, and he really wanted to meet the, the teachers, and uh, he wrote a book called A Search in Secret India, which actually became a worldwide bestseller. And in many languages it was translated, and it's still being translated 80 years after it was published. In that book, he... Uh, introduced Ramana Maharshi as a a leading sage and also describes the mystical experience that he himself had in the presence of Ramana. And when the book was published in the mid-30s, it awoke so much interest in the West that PB started being in, oh, call him PB. He liked to be called PB. is short for Paul Brunton, so that's what I mean when I say PB. He began traveling more in the West and was invited here and there to give lectures and meet with Western spiritual leaders. He continued to write for the next 15 years a series of 11 books that are a kind of a graded presentation of spiritual pursuit through various stages. I mean, The Search in Secret India was followed by a book called The Secret Path, which was basically Ramana Maharshi's teachings of self-inquiry. And then he went to Egypt also. Paul Brunton had a a deep interest in the the ancient Egypt, and he wrote a book called A Search in Secret Egypt. But after those two search books, his writings all focused on uh, various approaches to understanding spirituality or practicing it or both. I, I feel like I need to give you a chance to chime in here, ask me something more. What would you like to know about Paul Brunton? Well, one of the things that stood out for me about Paul was that he really didn't care much for, you know, being like coined a guru or he wasn't really caught up into the cult personality, which we see a lot today, especially because of social media. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody feels that their message is really important, and I'm not denying that it is not. But then I question, you know, from what place are we really coming from? And something about Paul was that he wasn't into that. And despite whatever he did, people still came to Paul asking him for advice. But he would always lead them back to, it's important that you understand your own spiritual integrity. So I loved that which I learned about him. Anything more that you had identified 
in his nature or his character that you thought that this was really contributing towards the path of spiritual awakening and enlightenment? Well, I consider, I think what you said is an important aspect of who he was and is and, and what comes through in his writing. He really cultivated, well, I'll tell you a little story. I, I mean, Ramana, I mean, did you know about Ramana Maharshi before? Yes. I don't know yes. what, yes. I mean, he's, Ramana has sort of become like the the core guru of of a number of contemporary teachers. But one of the things that Ramana said to PB one time was is that he says, as you get enlightened, you will not think that it is Paul Brunton who is writing because your consciousness will be centered in that which is beyond the little self of PB. So mm-hmm. you, you see, so that's really what I think happened to Paul Brunton was, you know, his own spiritual path led him to a place in his own development where his identity was shifted into what he calls the overself, or, you know, we call it the pure soul, or however you want to, we could talk about that, mm-hmm. but he had, there was a shift, and he began to regard, there's a story about, he loved pens, he's a writer, you know, so he was always looking for the ideal pen that would, the ink would flow just right, and that it felt comfortable in his hand, that it wouldn't give him cramps or whatever. One of our friends went shopping with him for pens one day, and um, he was, you know, writing on a piece of paper with each pen he was trying. And at the end of it, this person looked at what he was writing, and it said, I, it's, he wrote, I am a pen, I am a pen. So, you know, this is a life that was um, dedicated and actually more than dedication, you know, like I, I feel like I've dedicated my life to helping to preserve and promote spiritual teachings through these various great authors and preserving their work. But that mm-hmm. kind of dedication is one thing, but his is just the pure channel for expressing the you know the beauty and the intelligence of the divine mind. Yes, beautiful. You know, in the book, Paul Brunton provides um, instruction in three fundamental areas of the spiritual path, and the book that I'm talking about is The Instructions for Spiritual Living by Paul's Unpublished Writings. It basically does talk about Paul's views on meditation. And what did Paul see as the goal of the meditative stages? And what are some obstacles that people are likely to face? Okay, he talked about uh, three deepening stages of in meditation. And you might, as I go through them, notice something similar with other traditions but they're in, you know, his words in this chapter called Adventure in Meditation. He basically starts that chapter by saying, you know, we already are the soul, you know, that that's mm-hmm. our reality. We are but, souls, yes. Yeah, we are souls. But what good is it if we don't actually know it and live it? So the, mm. the process of meditation is actually to discover and then surrender, actually, our lesser ways of thinking and living and regarding ourselves into that deeper, more, you know, the divine ground of who we are, basically, just put it that way. And yes. these, three, these three stages are, one, 
to be able to sit without any outward distraction. So he'd say, when you've been able to abandon outward distraction, you've accomplished the first stage. So what are some outward distractions? Well, my nose is itching. I'm going to notice it and scratch it, you know. I mean, it's basically if you can sit still for the time that you've decided to meditate, that's a big step. But if there's a sound in the environment or whatever, and your uh, attention is pulled away from the subject of your meditation to that sound, whatever it might be, that's a kind of distraction also. So it's kind of like our involvement with the physical senses needs mm-hmm. to become un, you know, disciplined and under control in the first stage of meditation. In the second right. stage of meditation, our theme, our meditative theme, you complete this stage when you're no longer distracted by other thoughts or feelings or whatever might come up internally, you know, that we would normally consider subjective or our personal issues and stuff like that. It's when your aspiration, your intent, your focus is so involved with whatever it is that you choose as the subject of your meditation, which should be a spiritual Mm -hmm. theme, I would add, that you're no longer distracted from that. So you can basically hold, you know, like if you're meditating on a mantra, like Om or something, whatever, you know, whatever it is that, that draws you. And, and it can just go on for however long, you know, five, right. 10, 15, you know, however long, then you've mastered this kind of second stage. The third stage is where you become so involved in the subject of your meditation that you lose awareness of yourself as the meditator. You become undivided. There's no longer the subject-object division. You're just totally involved in what you are meditating on. And then the objects that you meditate on can become subtler. You know, you might be starting with a mantra or an image of a divine figure or whatever, you know, whatever your practice is. But in the end, you may just be uh, still in the silence. The silence is what pervades. And in that silence, the divine self can more easily reveal itself. And I say more because, you know, the divine can step into our consciousness at any moment because, I mean, it's there at our base, obviously it's present, but in terms of our distraction, our attention to other things in our lives where we have lost track of our soul, this is the, you know, the soul may call us back periodically to itself as a reminder to refocus or, you know, we're being called back in any case. PB talks a lot mm-hmm. about the power of grace. And there's a chapter in this book called the working of grace. And grace is basically that force, or you could call it maybe the Shakti or the power of the soul, which is driving our evolution. And, and as it becomes conscious in us, we become questers or seekers or spiritual seekers or whatever you want to call the human being when it, you know, starts to consciously orient towards the inner divine. Mm-hmm. So that that's the power of grace that's always working in us, and it will it will call. PB calls these events glimpses. Sometimes you get a glimpse of something at an unexpected moment, of something the world might suddenly appear to be perfect just as it is. You know, the descent of stillness into your being. Anyway, things like this. Did I answer well, your question enough about You meditation? did, Jeff. You did. One of the things that I liked that Paul had raised as a question was 
is the soul in the heart. Now, from where I stand, where this is concerned at this point in my life, it could change, is that we are all souls. And the soul as an energy inhabits our physical being, and it goes through various emotional stages from a completely filled, embodied energy of love, it wanes as a result of just life and situations and circumstances that hits the soul at a deep level. Like I feel like events and situations, relationships, when they hit us, you know, it disturbs the original worth of the soul, the love and the peace that's in the soul so we can feel it. But the organ that we can sometimes connect to when we are not able to subtly connect at a soul level is the heart. So we would sometimes check if the heart is is racing too fast. I go, I feel scared. Yes. If the heart feels opened and trusting, I would say, oh, yes. I feel so loved, you know. And so it's the soul that's saying, I feel this way, but the heart as an organ is signaling how the soul might be feeling because of the way that the heart is functioning. But Paul's question was, is the soul in the heart? What do you think his thoughts were on this? And I hope I didn't confuse you just now, Jeff. (laughs) No, no, no. It's very good. I was thinking as you were talking, oh, yes, it's kind of like when a baby comes into this world and there's so much innocence and love and you just see it shining on them. And then as they have to adapt to the circumstances they're born into, it gets, you know, clouded over or however you want to put it, you know, you you begin to see the shadows instead of the sunlight in your life. And yes, and it, you know, it becomes difficult that way. And it does impact us and impacts our body and our emotions and so on. I think, you know, Paul here is, Brunton is talking about when people say I, and they point at their body, oftentimes they point at their, in the middle of their chest. The heart center that's being referred to here is a, it's a couple finger. It's described as a couple finger widths, you know, like, like an inch to the right of your midline, so closer to the right side of your body than the left. With physical hearts, a little more on the left side of the midline, and it's not a physical center, but it can be felt quite strongly as a certain kind of warmth or vibration or a pointed kind of presence, pressure. So it doesn't mean that the soul is contained there, but it's the point mm-hmm. in the body. It's the point in the body where, well, it's recommended to meditate on, on the heart center because this mm-hmm. is the, the activities that we associate with the brain rise from the heart and go, you know, go to the head. It's the energy rises from the heart, goes to the head, and then we sense the world. It's kind of like the unmanifest world is in the heart. Uh, the Tibetans, you know, I had a lot of involvement with Tibetan Buddhism. They have the core is in the heart, the core being. The throat is like the, oh, also the sleep state. The throat is like the dream state, place in reference to the body. And the head is like the waking state. And PB follows something similar with the, you know, you say the, the seed thought for the world you're about to perceive will move from the heart to the head. And then it's like projected out through the senses. It's more of um, an inside-out affair, you know, where it's 
more that we're looking at the screen of our mind on which the the world is projected or portrayed rather than that there's a world out there that exists in its own right that somehow vibrates into our eyeballs and goes into our brain like that it's a re- right. it's a total <laughs> it's a total reverse of that understanding mm-hmm. um yes. but i want to want to mention the important thing is is that the soul is universally present there's no place right. where it is not and it's just that it's felt in the body as in the heart center but he, pb also says in one of his quotes that the way the the overcell for the soul connects to the body is through several centers but the i mean through thinking through emotions through our physical vitality these are all ex- ways of expressing but the fourth one which could be the, perhaps most important is the whole spinal system of chakras mm-hmm. but the the heart center is actually not the chakra of the heart center. It's something that stands behind that. In some teachings, yes. there's levels. There's levels to the heart. There's like the vital, emotional kind of heartfelt feelings. You know, more like the subtler kind of joy or pure kind of love, like yes. that. But then the, the the deeper level is more like the intense silence that's yes. available, or or a quiet kind of bliss that's available. There are these layers, and I think the heart, when Ramana or Paul Broughton talk about the soul and the heart, they're talking about this this deeper presence. The pure over-self is available there. Jeff, I don't know about you, but have you found that when you might not be in that pure blissful state or your mind isn't as peaceful as you want it to be or you're just you're just feeling out of sorts you know we've all been there yes, of course um, i still am a lot <laughs> you know like when we're yeah. just out of sorts what i've come to observe and it's an observation for me is i find myself and that's only if i'm very honest with myself that there is a desire lingering in me and this desire wants more than whatever I have or wherever I am in life. It could be a person, place, a thing, a circumstance, a situation, whatever it might be. And I found that that desire is actually the basis of my lack of peace and, and not being able to feel connected. Because when we really look at how we are doing and we are very, very present, if we're really, really present and we look around our lives, things are good. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, things are good. So Paul says that all our ventures in friendship and love, marriage and association, are really strivings to remove feelings of insufficiency and incompetence. How did you recognize Paul defining the true meaning of desirelessness? Living a life without desires. Well, okay. So he recognizes that there's a balance that needs to happen between what he would call more like the needs of the person, okay, and mm-hmm. and the needs of others or the needs of, you know, whatever the person's being in a situation is. And that 
let me put it this way, put it in context. In Jesus in the desert, the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, they mm-hmm. faced very strong temptations at the end, at the very end of their quest. And it was only when they took a stand at that extreme stage. In Jesus's case, he was offered many big temptations. You want to be king of the world, you know, whatever. And who knows what actually the Buddha was offered. But we understand from the scripture that the forces of anger and desire confronted him. So this is like the residue in oneself of those forces, which might have served us along the way. You know, when we're only thinking of ourselves as an embodied being, mm-hmm. we kind of depend on following our desires and, and knowing when we've been affronted, to, you know, to establish boundaries. And, you know, it's kind of like the, these forces can help us to build a certain personality structure and form us. Uh, you know, they say a strong ego is an integrated but yet flexible structure. It's a habit structure. Mm-hmm. But it's often built in the beginning anyway, through and also individualized in the beginning anyway by the things that attract us, the career we want to pursue, the skills we want to master. And it's very much like, oh, this will enhance me or uh, that really attracts me. I'd really like to become that. You know, it's, it has a lot to do with building our person. But mm-hmm. the, as one evolves and begins to see that primarily I'm not the embodied personality, there's something more here that wants to express itself through that personality, then there's this whole balancing act that takes place between what we call the virtues mm-hmm. and and the way they could become embodied through the personality as it is. And we have to learn to recognize the, what movements in us are counter to our aspirations. Yes. And, and sort of regard our personality as would a detached truth seeker regard it. You know, imagine the sage's eyes are your eyes looking at your personality in a given situation. Like how, yes. how would that affect the way you would respond to a situation rather than react to a situation? So what served us in the beginning, our desires and so on, I mean, it's closer to the animal in us, of what the Greeks called the irrational soul. But it's, it's that part of us that desire is the prime motivation. But when you step a little bit out of that and into a higher place, it's the will towards the good that becomes our driving force. But there's still these residues in us of the good is, you know, the balance between what's my good and what's the good of all, but the will towards the good uh, starts right. to to step in here more. So in PB's view, it's not until just before enlightenment that the the forces of fear, anger, and desire can no longer act in you in those ways. But he could still be strong with people, you know, if he was moved to say something or I wouldn't say I, I desire in him. Well, he loved a cup of tea at two thirty every day. British, <laughs> he's Brit. You know, he, he loved British, his tea. Yeah. You know, he had an exact way he wanted it prepared. It should steep for two minutes and fifteen seconds. But you know, <laughs> it wasn't like he. You felt like he was imposing it on you. It was just his preference. 
So desires sort of become preferences, but are readily relinquished in the face of some situation that might be more important. I mean, I heard him uh, say once, well, I didn't really, I would have preferred not to meet with that person, but I was directed to do so. So mm. it's really that. Begin to be led more by your intuition. Right. No, so I know you're familiar with these things, but I, I don't know if I answered your question about the place of desirelessness. In the stages yeah. of realization, there is desirelessness. You know, you're no longer feeling a lack that you have to fill, as you so wisely said, with something right. from the outside. And you no longer right. feel yourself to be so solid and important that if somebody criticizes you, you know, it, it's really like water off a duck's back. It's it's more of a, a uh, maybe a help to understand that other person or right. to maybe to examine something because I heard the Dalai Lama say, and I know P.B. says it in his writings, the virtues can grow forever. The, you know, skillful means, compassionate action, these things can can evolve and improve and grow forever because there's so many experiences in life and can you serve everyone in your, you know, in your ministry? No, because there are people that need certain experiences that you haven't had. They need certain right. understanding from wisdom of experience that one person might be able to offer and another one can't. Right. I get that. So in closing, Jeff, what do you think is the main instruction for spiritual living offered by Paul Brunton? Well, I think each chapter has some something unusual to offer, but I think this question we've sort of touched on a little bit about the independent path that we each should, in the end, we are our own higher self is what liberates us, not not even a doctrine or not even a guru. This was, as you started this session, what you um, enjoyed about Paul Brunton was is that he was more like a midwife and his the writings he offered we're more like to help us develop and know what's what's our makeup, what can we rely on, and how can we reorient to be uh, live a happier and wiser life. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, that's what we need in these times nowadays, Jeff. Jeff Cox, thank you so much for joining us on air. And can you leave us with a website where we can find information about Paul Brunton's work? Yes, of course. Just go to paulbrunton.org. P-A-U-L-B-R-U-N-T-O-N dot org. And from the homepage there, you'll find everything you need. Sounds fantastic. Paul, thank you very much. Lots of good wishes and blessings your way. Thanks, Sister Jen. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Take care. You're welcome. That was Jeff Cox, and he has been guided by the teachings of Paul Brinton, which we've now come to know a lot more about before I didn't. There's so many great voices out there. And sometimes when we just listen with sincerity and without judgment, it can move us as well to another dimension of our own lives if we're just open for the change. You know, I don't think we should be that open that we are vulnerable to having someone take us over completely. I think we're vulnerable enough to know there's always room for growth and transformation, and we're also wise enough to know that we can also think for ourselves too. We can also have our own thoughts and our own feelings and our own ideas which aren't really ours to own but it's really ours to share. 
I hope you've enjoyed our chit-chat today with Jeff Cox. If you want more information on the work of the latest release, Instructions for Spiritual Living, please go to paulbrunton.org, and that will give you a whole bunch of advice. Remember, no one can take away your happiness. You have to give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same, so let's do that. I'm going to end today's show from my Inclusion Revolution Together with Love album, here's Positive Resistance. Take care, everyone. There is a positive resistance that persists throughout our humanity's story. It's the resistance that will not allow the dark to take over the light completely. It is the resistance fueled with passion, goodness, truth, and benevolence. It is for the benefit of all and never just some. So in this moment of quiet reflection, when I think I resist, what do I mean? What do I wish to not nurture? And what do I wish to encourage to make humanity's story one of victory? To think I resist will never be enough. But I know I must change my own darkness that is within me. When I can transform my own dark into light, my negative state to a positive state, fear into love, this is positive resistance. As I weed out the garden of my mind, uprooting what is no longer a healthy thought, what intention or experiences of the past that no longer serve me or others. I can feel a positive resistance moving me upwards and forward in this deep silent space of wisdom. I have the power to keep maintaining positive thoughts for the self, for everyone around me. It is in this gentle persistence that I am at peace inside. I'm able to observe the qualities needed to move out all traces of darkness into light because I'm committed, convicted, and dedicated to a positive resistance inside, ushering through unstoppable positive changes in myself 
and in our world. Let me take this time to sit in the stillness and be silent. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.